The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I am a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I hang out with other fans, experts, and special guests to talk about the greatest books of all time. And today, I am honored to be joined by a brilliant scholar, a brilliant public intellectual, a New York Times best-selling author. She's the author of Beyond Respectability, The Intellectual Thought of Race Women, and the New York Times bestseller, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. Brittany Cooper, good to see you. Good to be here, Mark. You're good for a girl's ego. Yeah, that was my New York Times bestselling <laughs> a- a- audio voice, you know? I appreciate that. Before I talk about your book and your productivity, I want to talk about coffee because every episode, as you know, I start off with a cup of coffee uh, that I drink with my guests. It can be any kind of coffee. And so I decided for you, I was rereading your book and I said, what would Ronnie Groves drink? (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) That was your crush, Bible camp, Bible study. You know, I said, he seemed like a pumpkin spice type of guy. (laughs) (laughs) But I can't do that to myself because I'm not basic. So... I'm not saying he's basic. I'm just saying that drink is. So I decided to go with just a plain cup of black Uncle Bobby's La Cologne coffee. Which which would you be drinking? You know, I'm a fancy, non-fancy coffee drinker. So I don't have fancy brands, but I like a mocha latte. Definitely not pumpkin spice, but a little chocolate, some steamed milk. You know, it makes the thing come together for me pretty, pretty well. So I love mocha because it's a nice, pure cacao. So it's not sweet, but you get right. that chocolatey flavor, which, you, like you said, with the steamed milk, with the, uh, with of course, the shot of espresso. We love that. That keep us awake when we writing all this stuff. Did you know I used to be a barista? That was my my first and only retail job. So I tell people I used to be a barista in a bookstore in Books a Million Books, which they have a lot of down south, and they have like a little in store cafe. Wow. So you are literally the perfect person for coffee and books. <laughs> I try. You made the New York Times bestseller list, which is no surprise. You're, you're, you're well-known, you're well-regarded. It's a wonderful book. But you made the New York Times bestseller list a couple of months ago after the book went into paperback, had been in paperback for over a year. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, look, I made the, the list with everybody black, you know, the <laughs> nation, <laughs> which I'll take. You know, that that to me is not a... You know, that doesn't diminish the the value in any way. The nation was, you know, is on fire right now, literally and figuratively. And George Floyd had been killed and um, Breonna Taylor had been killed. And the country was, you know, over the summer having a moral reckoning with its shit. And so folks started buying Eloquent Rage. I also think Black folks were buying it because folks are mad. Uh, And so I think that there's an attempt to try to understand our rage and how to make sense of it if you're black, and then for white people to to try to really get at why why we're so angry and what we've been saying about it, and so that drove sales for 
a couple of months actually and, and made it to the bestseller list, which was super cool two years after a book has come out. So no, absolutely. I, I, let's start with that word rage because the first time I had uh, encountered the word rage, particularly from the black feminist tradition was when I was reading killing rage and I, and I thought mm-hmm. about well, uh, bell yeah. hooks sitting on that plane and, yeah. and making notes and that white man was sitting next to her <laughs> <laughs> and he saw her write killing rage and felt a certain kind of way. Correct. And so that word rage has always been powerful to me. In the book, you talk about how you had some distance from it at first, but there comes this moment of what you call it owning anger. What does it mean to own our anger? And how is the word rage uh, particularly valuable at this moment? Yeah, I mean, one, I think it's that. I think it's being in the tradition of Black women who have been thinking and writing about rage. So for me, it's, you know, both Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde who are thinkers who have helped me to make a lot of sense about my, of my own anger. But I also talk about an encounter with a black woman student when I was a grad student finishing my PhD. And, you know, she just said that she loved to listen to me give lectures in class because my lectures were filled with rage, but it was like, as she put it, the most eloquent rage ever. And my immediate response was to deflect because I felt exposed and caught out there. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. And I dealt with white people always being dismissive and and calling me angry when they were doing things that were deeply enraging. Um, And, you know, she just sort of checked it and said, like, you know, you're angry. You know what I mean? Like in a way that a black girl would. But a girl stop. (laughs) Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, Brittany, you know, you're mad. Like, what in the world? And so that moment of being seen helped me to like have like a critical intervention with myself in some ways around why I was running from all of this anger because, you know, to be black, you know, Baldwin, to be black and relatively conscious is to be in a continual state of rage, right, is a famous Baldwin quote. But also I'd seen anger be really destructive. And so I was really, really uncomfortable with being mad. And I also grew up in a house where you couldn't, my mom was old school in that way. She's sort of much softer now, but she was like, you know, if I was like getting fussed at or scolded or something, like I didn't get to pout or I didn't get to express that I didn't like it. You know, it was always fix your face. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. And so unfortunately, one of the outgrowths of that was that I was always uncomfortable and always over managing my own stuff. And mm. um, my student, you know, helped me to recognize that I wasn't managing it as well as I thought uh, on, <laughs> on one hand, or rather I wasn't hiding it, but I actually might in fact be using it for good, which was super helpful. So what are some of the things that would make that inspire such rage at the current moment or, or historically, particularly as it pertains to black women? I mean, we're, we're, we're getting hit on every side, you know, I mean, we have over 200,000 people have died, something like 40,000, more than 40,000 of those people have been black people. We have watched the nation kill person after person. You know, I go around the country, much like you giving talks, not at your level, of course, but given these talks, And when I talk about racial injustice, I remember that when I launched my public speaking career doing that kind of work, let's say 2012, 2013, the names just keep changing. And they change so quickly that if I'm updating a talk, the person I was talking about six months ago feels dated. And so it's just a continual profusion of Black death. I have been enraged for a couple of years at the the reporting and the, you know, exposure of this Black woman's maternal mortality crisis. We got... From, from from infancy to the grave, Black people are just catching hell on every side, right? And they're even, you know, b- Black children and Black mothers are catching hell, you know, in the womb. Uh, and then Black men are catching hell, you know, in the streets. So are Black women. But we, we watch our young brothers be harassed and dehumanized by the cops. 
And so that alone, but it's not just that. It's then like, I have a fancy job. I'm a professor, tenure professor, which is one of the more elite jobs you can have in this society. And watching up white people do the kind of shit that they do up close, watching the way that they make decisions that affect black and brown folks, watching the way that they sort of decimate institutions and practice austerity measures when black people need and deserve robust kind of institutional presence because it's the only way that we make our way out of poverty. Often it's the only way that we sort of achieve some level of social stability and mobility is by having strong public institutions. And so then whenever there's a little bit of crisis, you just watch white men manufacture more crisis and, you know, and make decisions about our lives And when you have these elite degrees, we were told as kids, you get these elite degrees because you want a seat at the table. And what I have found is that that seat at the table is often a front row seat, not to actually change things, but just to watch up close the ways that people decimate Black folks every single day and then go home to their cushy lives and and have to think nothing of it. And that rage is rage that I, you know, carry far more deeply it wasn't, I, it wasn't a thing that I expected. I thought that there was like an arrival. You, you got a degree, you arrived and, you know, and then you had the power to change things. And then I just found myself watching people make decisions that were horrible for the people I love and care about and not always feeling like I had the power to do anything about it. Mm. I want to talk about how you got to feminism, because that to mm. me is one of the really interesting, many interesting parts of the book. you got a little bell hooks in high school, you got the book, whether you, whether you knew what it was or not, something else. Yeah. But you get you get to college, you get to the campus of HU. Is, is, is that yeah. Hampton? Uh, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Don't make me cuss you. Like, what do you mean? There's only one HU worth talking about, and that's Howard University, the original. I, I, I get confused, you know. You know, uh, I, I can't I can't keep up. Uh, so, the, so. <laughs> Don't make I'm like, what? Oh, oh my God. I was gonna get some of that eloquent rage. Yes. Um, talk to me about what it, how, how how feminism became a, a part of your intellectual and personal, social, even spiritual life. How, it starts for, in many ways at HU, right? Yeah, I mean, Howard is you know all black everything. It was you know in the late '90s. You know, I was there taking over for the nine nine in the two thousand, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know it was, but it was still kind of all black everything. And so there were feminists on campus, but there wasn't a kind of robust, like organized feminist movement or organization on campus or anything like that. And so it was very new to me. And so I was running around, you know, saying the the classic tagline, feminism is for white women, right? It was basically something I'd heard somebody else say, not something I'd taken the time or care to kind of research myself. Uh, And I had a homegirl who pulled me to the side and was like, "Uh, you were talking real raggedy today and uh, you need to read and here's a book. (laughs) Uh, And it turned out the essay she gave me is like a classic in Black feminist thought. It's uh, this piece called Multiple Jeopardy, Multiple Consciousness by Deborah King, sociologist at Dartmouth. And that essay really set me on the path. And, you know, I wasn't, I don't know that I was claiming feminism when I left Howard, but I had a clear, clear sense of what it was and the way in which it talked about Black women. And I liked in that community that part of, part of what ended up happening is that even though I love Howard, leaving Howard helped me to realize the kind of, the, the critical blind spot during my Howard experience, which I think is different from some other people's which was that I just learned about all these really dope Black dudes. Like, Anna Julia Cooper's a luminary of Black thought, you know, a 19th century Black woman who wrote about feminism and was, was one of the first Black women to get a PhD. And there's a street named after her right near Howard's campus. But that's literally all she ever was to me at Howard was the name of the street, you know, adjacent. And now I'm like a scholar of Anna Julia Cooper. And I thought, 
how are we in this environment that is shaped by this woman who is so important to all of this work? And yet in no class that I ever took at Howard, did anybody ever talk to me about her? And so when I realized the ways that there was like a critical missing note of me knowing something about Black women's own participation and like Black thought and Black culture, it's like my one kind of major critique of my undergraduate education and filling that gap has become, you know, a lifelong project for me. There's a quote in the book that stood out to me. You said, loving Black girls is complicated, but loving oneself in a world where there is always someone ready to do you harm is even harder. Yeah. What does it mean? You know, I'm, I was trying to get it a way to talk about, like, people are very comfortable with this idea that Black women are, have dysfunctional relationships with each other. You know, folks sort of have a reality TV projection of what it means when Black women are in community. And that just wasn't my experience. Even though I talk in the book about having complicated relationships with Black girls where I loved having Black girls for friends, but there's also, I have lots of Black girls who did me wrong over the years. I will say in the mode of self-reflection that there aren't really Black girls who I did wrong. It, it ain't my temperament, right? But I did get done wrong, you know, just mean girl shit. So I wanted to own that it's not a, a rosy picture, that it's not always romantic or easy, but that I'm always going to put my money on the choice to love Black women in a world, especially in a world that just hates Black women to begin with and says that we're not worth investing in. And it feels to me like it's a really important mode of resistance to say, well, I am the thing the world hates and I'm also, I'm going to therefore love myself and I'm going to love other Black women who are also people that the world hates. What are some of the things that make it harder to, to do that love work? Look, I mean, Black, you know, trauma is real and Black girls have shit with them. You know, sometimes we don't trust real well Sometimes we have been, you know, mistreated so much even by other Black folks that we, you know, that we come to not trust our own people because, you know, part of what it means, particularly you're moving around these elite institutions, is that white folks will hand out cookies to you. And a lot of Black folks want those cookies far more than they want to sort of be connected to Black communities. Amen. So it can make it hard to connect. We're harder on each other. We have such deep expectations, deep needs for each other. And sometimes we are not always super forgiving of each other about our own stuff. Uh, I think a lot of us need to go to therapy and don't go and on and on and on. And so, yeah, it's like, I don't know that investing in friendships and relationships with Black girls has been one of the best decisions I've made in my life consistently, but it has not always been easy. And if you're also friends with people who sort of move in the direction that you do, and I'm friends with a lot of other ambitious Black girls. And so that means sometimes that you are having to manage your own ambition a lot because there's things that you all want together, but only some of you can have those things in particular moments and like figuring out how to be friends with people who are as driven as you are requ actually requires a lot of ego management and a lot of care and love and a willingness to like refuse your own worst impulses around competition, which is the thing that I work on because like I tell people, I'm super ambitious. I have lots of dreams and goals for my life, you know, and there's a way that you could be like, well, then I'm going to go out here and try to be a star and F everybody else. And like, it might work out for your personal goals, but it's, it can be hell on your personal relationships if you do that. Mm, you said one of feminism's biggest failures is its failure to insist that feminism is first and foremost about truly, deeply, and unapologetically loving women. How much of that when you say that, are you thinking about these friendships between and among women and how much of it is also about 
men's failure to be able to truly, deeply, and unapologetically love black women, even those who claim to be doing black feminist work. Yeah, I mean, there you have it. I'm tired of everybody who claims to be doing feminist work, and then when you learn more about who they are in person and up close, there's this long trail of raggedy treatment of women. I mean, look, we though there are people that we whisper, whisper about in, in feminist spaces, typically black women, you know, who do important feminist work in the world in a public facing sense, but who have really challenging relationships with other women. And that suggests to me that they haven't gotten to the core, tr- like, you know, feminism becomes a gimmick or becomes a thing to sell. I also think that's certainly true for brothers, right? That, you know, there has been this shift in our discourse. So, you know, I tell the story of a brother that, you know, I knew many years ago who could spout bell hooks and Patricia Hill Collins and all these feminist scholars off the dome. And, you know, but just was a womanizer, just was running chicks and doing a lot. And, you know, he was like, look, I love women, right? But it was, he said it sort of flippantly, like, I'm a hoe and I know it, but that doesn't implicate my feminist politics. And part of the thing I decided in my own life around some of that stuff is I was like, a lot of, chi- a lot of straight Black chicks who like feminism are always out here looking for these very progressive brothers who read shit and who can talk about gender discourse in us. Is that the, is that the chocolate boy wonder uh, phenomenon? Uh, the, the chocolate boy geniuses that, yeah, yes, that I can't it. stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> correct. And, you know, and, and many of us attract to those dudes and those dudes are often rolling dumpster fires. But part of the thing I learned in the process was like, be with the dude who actually likes women as people, likes their ideas, like seek that dude out. Cause he might not always be able to quote you the bell hooks, but he probably, he might have a better kind of understanding about like that you just don't go around doing women wrong. And so he will have a more feminist ethic in his way he moves than his rhetoric. And I know that sisters are, you know, there's a little bit of exhaustion around the brothers who say the right things, but who sort of can't live out the politics of it. How does that play out in terms of relationships, right? I mean, because there's the there's the interpersonal dynamics of having male colleagues, of having male mentors or mentees, students, whatever. Yeah. But then there's the idea of being in relationships with folk who may not fully, truly, to use your language, truly, deeply and unapologetically love you and who may actually be trying to do you harm or at least not wish you well. Yeah. I spend a lot of time despairing and in this book in particular, trying to work through through Black intimacy, particularly between Black women and Black men. And so many of the book talks that I give are sisters who just want to dwell there. Like they want to sit in that place because part of the reason I wrote this book is I was so tired. So my twenties in particular, and part of my thirties were hell on my dating life. And I was just one of those black girls that just continually got overlooked, you know, and and felt like in the kind of dating game of black life, I just always was losing. And there was a way that, you could come to blame yourself, right? I don't, you know, I don't have no game or I don't look a particular way or I'm not, you know, like that there are things wrong with me. And part of what I came to recognize was that some of this was a structural problem, both about availability of Black men at a like economic level. And some of it was about emotional availability too. And I wrote this book because I was tired of Black girls blaming themselves for a whole set of structural conditions that we didn't produce that was shaping our relationships to Black men. And there's a way that Black women understand how Black relationships are political and a way that Black men understand it and resent it and reject it, right? Mm. 
all of us are stuck in this morass of the pressure to love each other in a world that doesn't love us and to like build a black family and to build this, I, you know, this, you know, in the most contemporary sense, like this sort of Obama shorthand ideal for like a functional black family or something. And it's a lot of pressure. And then black women come into those relationships and they pull more emotional weight in those relationships because brothers are still out here being like, my dating choices aren't political. I just like who I like. Black men don't feel like they owe Black women anything when it comes to the politics of intimacy. They don't feel like they owe us respect. They don't feel like they owe us any kind of dating loyalty. They don't feel like they should try or suffer long with us when it comes to what it looks like to build love. Conversely, when you talk to Black women, we feel all of those things. Like we want to partner with Black men, like we owe it to our race and our ancestors and our people to build a Black family. Like you know, like we'll go with brothers through some things, even when they hang out, they shit together or worked it out. And brothers don't seem to have that same emotional landscape about it. And it makes it really hard for us to come together. Let me ask you about another surprisingly controversial topic in <laughs> academic circles. Beyonce. Yes. You got a whole Beyonce thing going on in this book, chapter. Yep. And for those that don't know, among Black feminist circles, Beyonce has been some has been somewhat of a lightning rod. There are people who affirm her as Black feminists, who talk about her feminist politics, as you write in the book, somewhat rooted not only in her fundamental love of Black women and her, her finding refuge in Black female friendships, but also what her broader aspirations are for envision for what women should be, and others who see her as the biggest problem to ever <laughs> sort of confront yeah. the, the, the movement. Why take up Beyonce and, and, and what does it mean to you? I mean, partly I took her up because, you know, because I want us to be thinking about what feminist lives look like in every part of our lives. And I love her music. It gives me joy. I've literally been a Beyonce fan since the first Destiny's Child album. I revel in telling people this because when young people be trying to claim Beyonce, I'm like, Beyonce and I are the same age. You know, I'm nine months older than Beyonce. Like we grew up together, you know, in my right. head and in my telling. And so as a generational peer, her journey around feminism has been interesting. It was her definition about loving women and being a friend to other women that helped me to drill down to this sort of core kind of element of feminist practice, right? Which is, is, is female friendship. But yeah, Black girls love to either love or hate B, you know? And I, was, I decided that it was important for me to take her up in this book in part because there was this Black feminist discourse, particularly after she released her 2013 album, also titled Beyonce, where Black women, Black feminists just showed out so bad on the internet in a way that I have never seen. We beefed, we scrapped, we just fought each other like, oh what's my God. Core, what's the core issue here, right? Because she's not the first to do some of these things. What's the yeah, thing? Well, she, well, A, she decides that she's actually going to claim feminism on the album. But let me say what I think the core issue is, right? Because everybody else was like, it's neoliberal and she's a capitalist and therefore she can't be a feminist. And I'm like, what? so the scholar in me was like, that's actually just factually inaccurate. As a person who does this work as my day job, like there's all kinds of feminism and all forms of feminism are not fundamentally anti-capitalist. There is a version of feminism that's just about gender parity. Like we want to make the same kind of money men make that isn't about critiquing a capitalist structure, which is where I see Beyonce's feminism landing. It means it ain't the most radical iteration. It doesn't mean that it isn't feminism because it's still rooted in the critique of like patriarchy and sexism or whatever. And I thought that the fact that she was trying to have a political analysis was important, even if it was inchoate, even if she was in an infancy stage with it, 
And they were like, what I think is she's a trigger. And the thing, Beyonce's light skin, she's pretty, she's got this dude. She, I mean, we we were seeing her sort of build this kind of empire that she's trying to build. And light skinned girls and like, so there's a, a more emotional truth, which is I think people were like, she can't be both the pretty girl and the woke girl. Right. Right. And she's talented. Yeah. So for those of us who were the nerdy girls who were not the pretty girls, we're like, okay, well, we're in our nerdy girl lane being smart. And those pretty girls can like have that, but they're basic and vacuous and shit. And like they can't, and, and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> right. The thing that bothered me about it is I was like, if feminism is a politics, you had this girl, she's with this dude, this old ass dude who is like much older than her. She, she's super powerful. And when she met, he was on top of his game and she was on the come up. And in many ways, she has eclipsed him. And so if you are navigating that in an intimate relationship every day and you are navigating a level of power in the industry that, you know, we hadn't seen since like the Jackson family, I think she was looking for a language to think about power, to think about like intimacy and relationship building and all of that. And feminism was a natural place to look for it. And people were mad and were trying to say that she was marketing it as a gimmick. And I was like, well, when did become a, when, when was feminism a cool kid thing to be? Like, let me find out that people out here will love me because I'm flying the flag of feminism as a black woman. But what would um, you say to what would you say to the person that says that if she mainstreams feminism, because Beyonce can do just about anything and make it cool, right? Sure. If if she takes feminism and makes it mainstream at the same time, she's bringing in Chimamanda Adichie, right? As she does. Yeah. Uh, is that the Lemonade album? It's in the the, the Beyonce album. It's Beyonce Chimamanda. album. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, and and so she's 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 bringing all this stuff in, and if she's doing it without the critique of capitalism and all the stuff that the most radical feminist iterations would want, that there's a chance that it creates a kind of public mantra similar to what like Sheryl Sandberg or somebody might do with what? telling t- telling us that we should be leaning leaning in and and wanting to be like men and having it all and have corporate power. That there's a yeah. way that Beyonce could be reinforcing problematic notions of feminism, and that and that it would be the job of anybody who knows better to critique to spend time critiquing that. Sure. You know, what I said in shorthand form was Beyonce is not my feminist icon or role model. I should be her feminist icon and role model. Right. That's all I mean is that we were here doing the work. She's trying to be down with us. It's not about us trying to be down with her. And we need to understand it as that. Just I understood the 2013 album is her being like any kid that comes to take a one on one feminism class from me and is just trying to understand the basics of this. And so they subjected her to a PhD level critique when she was an intro student. And it didn't uh, make no sense to me, right? That's um, fair. And so, yeah, also, I think we can say, yes, that's mainstream feminism, but there are other levels to this. And that's what we did at the Crunk Feminist Collective. We brought Beyonce into a conversation. And here's the thing that has happened in the interim, right? She, what I like about Beyonce is she's reading the critiques and growing. If you look at what she does in interviews and then, you know, what she gives them and then what she does in albums. Like, I read the 2013 claiming of feminism as a response to the fact that for three years, at least prior, people had been saying, are you a feminist? And she didn't have great answers other than that answer about being a friend to women. And so then she she's like, okay, cool. Like, I see what y'all mean. Yeah, I'm that thing. And then people are like, fuck it, you can't be that thing. So in 2016, we get, well, let me sink a cop car in, in, in New Orleans and let me, you know, perform that kind of pop political song on the anniversary of the founding of the Black Panthers. And, you know, there's a critique about her racial politics because initially she's trying to be like, well, I'm a fancy Black. I'm Creole and I'm mixed and I'm all this stuff. 
And then she comes in 2016, she's like, I'm blackity black, black, and I like my Negro nose with J5 nostrils and stuff, which is to say, she doesn't shrink from our critiques. We come for her and she responds in the art. And that to me is the ethic of loving black girls, even when we're being hard. We're giving her the business, we're ripping her apart, we're saying she ain't about shit, and that she cannot be part of our club. And she literally Some, some, some have called her a terrorist. Uh, listen. Mm-hmm. For those that are uh, <laughs> feminist scholar, Bell Hooks, during a talk referred to uh, Beyonce as a terrorist. And I wrote at our Crunk Feminist blog back in 2014 when she did that, a piece called um, Be Bell and Bullshit. Where, where are all these socialist superstars? Like we have cheek of capitalism or whatever. And yes, I think that we can critique, we could critique Beyonce's body politics around whiteness and all of that stuff that was sort of going on with her body at that point. But terrorism is a very particular geopolitical construction that you just don't append that's always violent to append to any person in this moment actually and it's certainly violent to append it to a black woman and because bell hooks is the mother in many ways of you know the sort of founding model of this kind of pop culture black feminist pop culture critique i was hurt i think not merely incensed but actually hurt that she wasn't able to make space for a kind of different generational articulation of some of the things that she taught us all to care about. And what I like about B is that she just keeps trying to get better. And it, it says to me that she's reading us, she's engaging us, and she's really trying to assimilate it. And she's also doing it without the active benefit of like a feminist theory community that comes out of the academy. And yet she still manages to put out art that keeps on elevating the conversation that to me is a black girl love ethos. And it is really what I mean when I say black girls are hard as shit. Sometimes we really go at each other. And my own inclination is to the extent that it's healthy to keep coming back to the table and trying again. And I see that inclination in her art and I will always fuck with that. And my, the part of me that rides for black girls is always therefore going to defend that. In this book, Eloquent Rage, you are reflecting on your life in various parts. It's cultural criticism, it's memoirs, it's, it's all yeah. the things. But there's a very particular section where you narrate your own childhood and you walk us through some pretty intense moments of, of violence. You give us your family backstory and you talk about your mother being shot and your mm-hmm. father being shot. What did it mean to you to put that on the page? You know, it, it wasn't part of the book proposal for this book actually mm. some of it is that because I, I am from a black family I didn't even I hadn't even fully put that story together until I was kind of working on this book and I you know my mother never sat so the way that that story sort of appears is a coherent like chronology of events but that's not the way that I learned it over my life it was like my I would hear a snippet or a piece here and there and I was always like putting the pieces together and at some point a story emerged and I was like oh shit wait a minute and I sort of go back to my mother and I say wait so this shooting thing that happened were you already pregnant me with me when this shooting thing happened and she's like yeah I didn't know it yet but I was and I was like and in my whole life I was well into my 30s before I figured that out and I was like in my whole life nobody thought that they should say this or you know, it wasn't, it, it has not been a foundational part of my own story or understanding of myself. And so writing it was the first time that I told my own story fully publicly. And, you know, it was also my attempt to grapple with where, where my earliest models of rage came from. It was watching the, experiencing the violence that really beset my own life 
and recognizing that that is why I struggled so hard to assimilate rage as something that was useful because all I had ever seen it do was have these really devastating consequences that were super scary. And I guess in some ways it's a tribute to my dad who I, you know, who passed away when I was nine, who was not only shot when I was, you know, in utero, but also shot when I was nine and killed. You know, it was my attempt to try to understand him and to not, to use a Black feminist lens to both say, you created much of the chaos of my life and much of the trauma that I've experienced came at your hand. And also to, to say, but you were also a victim of patriarchy. You were a victim of these masculinist ideas of power and violence. You were, you know, my dad died trying to protect another woman from another man with a gun. And so two of the times that he was shot in his life were times when he was with a woman he loved and he was the victim of another man being violent with that woman. And I thought that that was so profound that my dad was both deeply violent himself, but also often the victim of other men's violence. And so to just tell the story as him being a monster was to miss the thing that I think we're always trying to do with these systems, which is to say, we're all living in them and living with the intimate consequences of them. And perhaps to make the argument for the men that would read this book, that when that I became a feminist, not so that I could spend my time being mad and angry at, at Black men, but rather so that I could try to understand how this particular system of power, like a racialized patriarchy, had also ruined men that I loved and men who I needed in my life and who weren't there because of the, of the scripts masculinity had provided and the ways those scripts of masculinity stole men from me, particularly my dad. Um, how, how do you write a book about Black feminism that takes into serious consideration the arm's length you want to keep away from white women yeah. with whom you have a complicated <laughs> relationship? As you say, as you say it in the second yeah. chapter and black men. Right. In other words, how do you keep black women at the center while still keeping track of your relationships to black to white women, to black men, et cetera? How, how did you navigate that? Was that a, was that a, did you have to be intentional? Yeah, about it was that? a challenge. Uh, and part of it was even about like I got the wrong this suggestion from someone involved in publishing my book to switch the order of the first two chapters. So th- the second chapter begins with this line, like I have a complicated relationship with white women. And I was strongly encouraged to begin with that chapter. And I was like. It's a book about and for Black women. And if the, op- the opening line is about white girls, then I've set a different tone than the one I want to set. And so I fought to keep the chapter order that I had. And what I was fighting was a market-driven idea that white women turn books into bestsellers and that Black women don't buy books. And that had not been my experience. I was like, does no one know about the waiting to exhale phenomenon? Does no one know about Essence Magazine? Like, Black women have been buying books. My mother, my house was filled with books you know, when I was a kid. So I, you know, but I also was like, if I just keep thinking about what are the things that are important to Black girls, what are the conversations we care about having, then I knew that I needed to think in a couple of different ways about how we were navigating our relationships to Black men. I knew that I wanted to talk about white women, but I wanted to sort of model for Black women what it meant to both have a clear critique of the foolishness that white girls do, of their treachery, as I say. And also to say, Black feminism ain't about white women. It's about us, about our stuff, about the things we carry that no one sees. And so I just tried to remind myself 
not to be seduced by the lure of like the well-timed rant about white people because it pulls you in and it can take you off course. And then you'll have written a whole book explaining white people to themselves and why you're so mad. And you won't have said all of the things that are so important for black, that black women deserve to get to see and hear on the page. Talk to me about your writing a little bit. You are one of the most prolific writers I know. You managed in, in the last few years to put out a volume with the Crunk Feminist Collective. You managed to put out your first book uh, on University of Illinois uh, Press. And then you were able to write this book in a very short amount of time. And you, you're constantly writing articles and pieces. And I'll be honest with you. Some people do that and it's not good. And I'll be like, yo, I wish I promise me you'll write less <laughs> next year. <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. But but you ain't you ain't that person. How, how do you how do you manage to do that? What what moves you to do that? You know, look, I, I write a little bit less in the public these days than I was doing kind of in the phase where I was doing these books. And what I will say is both that all of the public writing was practice, which was really nice. What it gave me was a discipline and structure because every week someone was going to show up either to the blog or to my column at Salon and be expecting a piece. And so, you know, it's like a muscle. And when you're exercising it consistently in that way, you're pro, you know, like I felt like it was in the pocket of my writing for a few years, which is really nice. And so it also made me able to write. Beyond Respectability was the slow, slowest book ever. And Eloquent Rage was in some ways the fastest book ever. But both of them really grew out of years of kind of a disciplined writing process, both academically and for the public. I miss that consistent weekly writing thing because it's hellish to do but it, it I think it helped my prose to be kind of where I wanted to be I could hear myself and I could get in the zone a bit better like now I just can't sustain that level of productivity and frankly Mark I like got worried that people were tired of listening to me I was tired of listening to me I felt like I was writing the same piece over and over again because so much of my work was about Black people being decimated by state violence and that felt taxing to do every week, you know? And I also was like, okay, as increasing professional demands have happened, how can I do this in a way that is more sustainable? And I really have, am, am trying to make the shift from being from the need to be prolific to the need to just be good, right? And so I don't have to respond to everything. I don't have to sort of be on top of the moment. I know people like that. But frankly, I felt like in the last six months of the column that I had, that folks weren't even reading me that much anymore, in part because it, it seemed like there was a, a digital shift going on to video, and now we know to podcast. People's attention spans were getting less and less. And I, I am trying to make some commitments about what kind of writer do I want to be. And, you know, the thing I love is the finely crafted Black essay. Uh, and I'm trying to figure, really figure out my voice in that, how to do it with my generational sort of perspective and aesthetic. You know, a lot of the early essayists, they're, you know, Toni Morrison is a blues writer. She's a jazz writer, right? That's the like musical aesthetic that undergirds her, the way she comes to the page. And while blues and jazz are sort of in the background of my upbringing, the blues more so than jazz, I would say, interestingly enough, you know, hip hop is the soundtrack. And so how do you have that kind of aesthetic and be in the tradition of feminist essays and have something unique to say? So that's, that's where I am as a writer. I'm, I'm struggling to, try, you know, I'm struggling with it. I'm like showing up to the page but I'm trying to really treat, like, be rigorous about what it is to do that. And also to like, 
not lose my audience, my black girl audience who, you know, who loved eloquent rage and felt like I kind of spoke in their voice. And so, yeah, like I'm trying to figure it out. What are your inspirations for that, for that kind of aesthetic? Who are you reading? So I'm working on this new book tentatively called how to love a feminist. Uh, and it's a book of essays about the politics of love and social justice movements and in black communities. And so I've gone back to just reread Baldwin on love, Baldwin's novels, Baldwin's essays. I also, as I was working, as I've been working on that book, I've, I've felt a deep need for June Jordan, who's been really clutch. And so mm. I've been rereading lots of June Jordan, which has been incredibly helpful to me. And so I'm feeling the need for all of those. Like I'm feeling the need for Toni Morrison and I'm, you know, I'm feeling like, you know, it feels like the moment feels super heavy, you know, don't feel like there's a lot of give in the moment and trying to wade my way through that and trying to figure out where do you go after rage affectively. That's an interesting turn. I mean, think about, I think about jazz artists that had to make that turn or that chose mm. to make that turn. And they tried to find different outlets, different inspirations. Some listen to other artists, some took other other forms altogether mm-hmm. as a mechanism of inspiration. Is there anything else you draw on other than just other writers? Is there music? Is there visual art? Is there other stuff you draw on? I, you know, I'm not a person who reads a lot of poetry, but I've been reading more poetry because I needed sparseness. Mm. And so I like Morgan Parker. I like Ricky Laurentis, a few others, you know, whose collections have sort of, I've gotten to access over the last year or so. I met some really great poets when I was a finalist for the Hurston Wright Award last year. And so I've been sort of thinking about their work too. You know, the thing is, it's interesting to try to make the turn to love because there's so much to be mad about in this moment, right? And I, mm. so I still listen to a lot of crook music because I don't think I ever won't be listening to a lot of it. Wait, wait, you listen to crook music for love inspiration? No, I listen to it because it soothes the the savage beast, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> got you, got yeah. you. <laughs> um, you know, and, I, I mean, and, then, and then when not that, then lots and lots of old school R&B. You know, I, I mean, I grew up on some mm. of the best R&B. You know, my mama is like a music connoisseur for sure. And so a lot of 80s R&B actually, uh, Luther, Patty, Alex O'Neill, you know, Freddie Jackson, kind of Quiet Storm kind of stuff you know, I'm a baby face baby, that sort of thing. But I love that kind of music. And it's another thing that calms me and gets me to thinking about like, what do I, what kind of black sociality feels like home to me? Yeah. You know, and and what I want to listen to at a party. Cause like, I'm also trying to find that thing where even though you can be literary, like what does it mean to be literary, but to not be literary in these stuffy ways that we've been taught to perform literariness. Right. And so sometimes part of it is about like, well, don't keep thinking about it. Just sit down to the page and write the things that you feel or that you need to say and trust that the form will show up there if you're consuming enough forms of Black art. I mean, and, and then Black TV is, is such an embarrassment of riches right now. And so, you know, so there's lots of good Black art happening. There are a generation of, and I hate to use that generation word because it kind of marks us as older, but there is a generation of scholars coming after you. There is a generation of writers coming after you, of Black feminists particular, yeah. in particular who are coming after you, who are looking at your model and they're saying, I want to do this mm-hmm. too. I, and I've seen you tweet about this recently, write about this a little bit. Can you talk about 
what it means to be a public right, particularly as an academic. And let me just say this. You, you are a, again, you're a tenured professor of women's and gender studies and Africana studies at Rutgers University. Your first book is on the University of Illinois Press. It's a university press, which is sort of the germ of worth in academia. You get yourself a university press book. It gets well-reviewed. You, you know, you, you have your scholarly bona fides, and then you, sometimes people move on to, a, you know, another project. And you did all that. I, I just want to establish <laughs> that, right? It needs to be established in some ways, right? I have, um, you know, graduate students who I interview sometimes when they're trying to work with me or work in our department. And they'll say, I want to be a public intellectual. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, but what do you want to study? What do you want to get a PhD for? Because there's a lot of ways to be public without getting a PhD, going through all these years, taking exams, sitting exactly. in the archive, whatever the thing is. There's other ways. To, this ain't the most efficient way to be rich and famous. <laughs> and it's the most unlikely way to be rich and famous. So this ain't, yeah. this ain't it. But what do you say to people who look at you and they see you on TV? They see you with a, with a trade book. They see you, what people imagine is, is, is fortune and fame for being a writer right. and a thinker. What do you say to those people who are trying to navigate the world you navigate? What are they missing? What do they need to know? How can you be instructive to them? Yeah. Oh, my God. I spent too much time thinking about this question because it's so weird. It's like, so let me, let me say the honest thing, which is being on TV is cool. Like, being on TV is cool. Knowing famous people or semi-famous people or whatever is super cool. I get the shine, I get the allure of it and all of that. And I wanted some of that. I was a college kid and Michael Eric Dyson used to come preach the chapel at Howard University and, you know, and he would be on TV and I was like, oh, what's that? You know, like, I think that's a thing that I wanted to do. But the difference, I think sometimes in how I understood it and how we have understood it and how younger scholars understand it is I was like, so what kinds of things do you study to get that smart? that people will want to call you so that you can have something to say like that, you (laughs) know, so I was like, okay, how do I become a scholar that's that smart and also smooth in the presentation of the work? Whereas other people just are like, I just want to be on TV because I want people to know my name. So what I just always tell my students and I tell young people is really be a scholar because TV is not always going to call us. They're not always going to be interested and if 30 years from now, Lord, I can testify to <laughs> you that. You sure can, right? And, you know, <laughs> and, 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 but also you can testify to it because you have a particular commitment to a radical politics and platforms were the way that you have put your work in the world. They haven't been the end goal in themselves. For me, being a, right. a professional nerd was the end goal. Like I wanted a job where I could w- read and talk about books and ideas with people every day of my life. And Mm. Do that in all the forms that it would actually be useful to people. And so people just really need to drill down to what is the thing that you want? And it's okay to want visibility. It's okay to want to be impactful. But the scholarly enterprise is, is something like in a world where we, our people used to be criminalized and harmed for, a lo- you know, for reading books. You know, it, to me, it says, you know, we have to respect not the academy, but the enterprise of being so privileged to lead a life of the mind and to not then diminish that by making it about being a sort of uh, crass pathway to fame. I think that that's really messed up. So do your work, read the books, actually have a scholarly perspective that's valuable, um, actually write. And then all of the other stuff can come from that is, is like the thing that I think. And I also really want people to have a more robust understanding of what it means to be a public scholar you can have a radio show. You can be doing work at local high schools. You can be doing work in nonprofits. You can be doing work away from the cameras and be a really impactful person 
in your community with the ideas that you went to school to hone and refine. Sometimes the more generous read I have is not that everybody initially thought that being on TV was the goal, but that now that there are more of us who are doing that kind of work or more of us who are getting trade deals, that people feel like that should be the goal or it has limited their universe of possibility about what they should want, right? Um, and, And let me say the shady thing. The shady thing is, if you ain't spent no time crafting a public writing voice, then why do you think that being writing a trade book is the thing you need to do? Because some of y'all just write a bunch of academies and high theory, and then you think that a trade book is the natural outgrowth of your career. But those of us who write for trade typically are doing that because we've actually spent some time practicing what it means to have a broader audience than our colleagues in academe. And this idea that it's just the next stepping stone, like, do you want a life where the value of what you do, trade presses are corporations. What they want to do is sell books and they want to make back any money that they've invested in you. And the pressure to sustain these sort of corporate demands is going to shape your labor in ways that university presses, which actually care about the value of the ideas are not going to do. And so really figure out the thing that you want and figure out the thing that you've practiced and trained to be and then be that thing and be very good at it. And if trade is what you want, then perhaps don't just pop up and be like, I want a trade book deal when ain't nobody read 1,200 words from you for an audience outside of people who have PhDs behind their names. It feels super weird to me. And a little bit of entitlement. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I always wonder, because it's not just about they want the deal, they want the money that comes with it. I've, I've had colleagues say to me, you know, I've written uh, four books on Lincoln. Uh, you know, like 50 people have read these books put together. And they're like, it's time for the six-figure deal, Mark. And I'm like, look, I hope you get it. I ain't hating. It ain't my money. But just acknowledge that, one, you may not know how to write a book for a, a large audience. And that it's a, it's a process. And two, they're not just giving the money away. They're, it's an investment in, in what they're, like you said, that they're going to get back. And so... It, it takes more than a notion to write for, for a large yeah, audience it, and to write in a way that people care. It feels really disrespectful, frankly. Like, you know, like <laughs> right. basically it's people being like, well, since I'm a PhD, naturally I can do this lesser thing that y'all are over here doing. There's no craft to right. that. But also most trade deals aren't six-figure deals. You know, right. if people want to know more about that, I suggest they check out the hashtag publishing paid me where luminaries like Roxane Gay and Justin Ward and KSA Lehman talk about the kind of money that they got for their first books and you would be, cause they weren't nowhere in the ballpark of six figures. And I, my mouth was on the floor like, wow, you know, because they are really setting the standard for writing in, in this generation greatly. So anyway. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Brittany, before you go, I need to play a game with you that tends to torture my guests oh God. and bring me great joy. Oh God. So it's win-win. Okay. It's called buy it, borrow it, or burn it. Oh, oh God. Okay. I'm going to name three books. One you can buy, one you borrow, one you burn. Now, of course, just a reminder to the audience, we love all books. We love all the authors. We would never burn a book because we just <laughs> were book nerds. But for the purpose of this game, I'm going to give Dr. Brittany Cooper three books. Oh, one God. you buy, one you borrow, one you burn. Okay. And you tell me why. Here are the three books. Okay. Sister Outsider, Audre Lorde. When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, Joe Morgan. Black Feminist Thought, Patricia Hill Collins. No! No! I refuse! I'm not playing! You gotta play! Come on, it's gonna be fun! No! I won't do it! I shan't! 
do it. And you know Joan is my friend and you're being shady. And Dr. Collins is my friend too. Oh. Just just to give you context, last week I had Michael Denzel Smith on here. Mm-hmm. He had to pick between Kese Lehman, Darnell Moore, and Bossy Ickby. <laughs> so Oh my God. Ooh, this is a good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You ain't right. You are not right. All right. I'm going with I'm gonna buy Collins. I'ma borrow Jones. I'ma say it. Burn Outsider, oh my God! Oof, this is I'm fun. sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, Lord L O R D E, forgive me. What in the world? All right, so you said you said you're gonna buy black feminist thought. Why? You know that is my, I call it my black feminist systematic theology. It is the thing that helps me scaffold the tradition together. Mm, okay, yeah. I, I think that's a great one. I actually love that book very much. The first. Black feminist text that I read with intention and I understood as such was Black feminist thought. I took a class called The Black Woman at Temple my senior year. And that's actually the book. It was taught by a woman named Dr. Renoir McDonough, Black feminist scholar, Mm. um, psychologist. That book made me convinced to go to graduate school, made me convinced that I wanted to read and write for a living and radically changed my life. So none of these, there's no wrong answer, but that book has a sentimental place in in my heart as well. Uh, You said you'd borrow... When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost by Joan Morgan. Shout out to Joan. (laughs) Yes. I would borrow that book because that was the book that actually helped me to figure out that I too could be a feminist. And when I was Mm. really struggling with how to assimilate it into my life, that is the book I went back to. And it became the generational marker for me in grad school of like how to define myself in the tradition. And so it was my armor when my professors would be, you know, being like, because we're blues generation black feminists or whatever, you know, I was able to proudly hold up this book and say that there there was a femini- a place in feminism for girls like me. So, yeah, a- another wonderful book, Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. And uh, when Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost and, and for me, that idea of a feminism that, you know, a lot that fucks with the grays, I think she said, yeah. you know, the, the nuance, the contradiction, it, it created space to, to allow us to think about the contradictions of a feminism. And, and I've watched a generation of thinkers, of students, of scholars, et cetera, come to terms with him, fem- like hip hop feminism and feminism more broadly yeah. through that through that text. Shout out to Dr. Joan Morgan. Yes. And then and then there's Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, uh, which you threw into the bonfire. Oh my God. I mean, it's really I you know, is this gonna be recorded? Are people going to listen to this? Because I feel like so what I'm what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do the remix and I'm gonna say I'm gonna burn it because see that book is a phoenix and it's gonna rise from the ashes. Okay. Nice. You can okay. tell she grew up in the church. That's that, 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 <laughs> so that's some is, good. It's never remixing. gone. You know, it's just refined in the fire. It's gonna come out like gold. You know, like so. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Well, that book is, is is an important book and it's it's important to you. In my mind, you were going to buy or borrow that one. You mentioned it in the book as a yeah. book you used to carry around. Tell me what Sister Outsider meant to you. I mean, you know, that, that, that book is like, I mean, I'm using all these biblical metaphors, super interesting, but it's like a, it's like a black feminist Psalm. It's the book. It it does this deep emotional work around what does it mean to actually live out these politics in an intimate and personal and daily way and not to let, not to not be politically engaged, but to also be thinking about how does black feminism help fortify one's own spirit? How does it, you know, inform one's own relationships and, and commitments 
And the uses of anger, I mean, it's one of my favorite essays, but also the master's tool will not dismantle the master's house. And I mean, literally every essay in the age, race, sex, and class, women redefining difference, which is really doing, you know, like so many texts, the intersectional framework before we have intersectionality. I mean, Audre Lorde just gives us so much. And she's also a beautiful writer. If you had not forced me to play this terrible game, <laughs> then I, I would or not. Or awesome game. <laughs> it's, a te- it's a terrible game, but also it's a book that I believe so deeply in. I mean, in some ways, I think, you know, just to, to, to spin my own choice here, you know, it's a book that will never die. It is, it is deeply, you know, a part of me. And I just think the truths in that book are like seared into my soul. And I know that eloquent rage doesn't exist without sister outsider doesn't exist without the uses of anger because that is the book that gave so many black women permission to say the hard shit well i hope you know that your book eloquent rage and your whole career has given another generation of folk permission to think and feel harder truths and to delve more deeply into the 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 most interesting parts of our lives the, the darkest precincts of our soul and to help us imagine a life that is more livable more loving more human you are a special writer, a gifted public intellectual, and I'm glad to call you a friend and a colleague, and I'm so glad you hung out with me today. How can people hang out hang out with you? I know you on social media. How can they get you? Yeah, Professor Crunk on Twitter, Professor underscore Crunk on Instagram. Yeah, I'm, I'm always hanging out over all, both of those places and talking shit. I have some new books coming. I have new books of essays coming. We have a young adult book on feminism coming next year, and mm. I have a new children's book series coming, too. Oh, my God. I didn't even know all that. I'm going to have you come back so you can tell me all this stuff you got. You got too much stuff for one episode. So you're going to come back and talk to me. Brittany, promise me you'll come back. I will come back for sure. All right. And, and maybe I won't make you play that game again. <laughs> you, you know you're going to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, books show also you can buy all the books that i've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash uncle bobby's or you can go straight to unclebobbies.com that's uncle b-o-b-b-i-e-s.com